Hey, what's up, guys? It's Rico here, CEO of SourceFind Asia, host of Main China Podcast, and the host of the SourceFind Asia YouTube channel. And this week was a very special episode. Uh, I was in Hong Kong about a month ago, just before I got to the Philippines, and I was able to sit down with, uh, I'd like to call him a, a good friend at this stage, Nick Zebra. He is one of the uh, one of the partners of the new Enter China team. So I, I'm not sure if you guys are aware, but I used to be a partner on EC and an Enter China team. That was about two, three years ago. I stepped down. Like I think I, I I've talked about it with Nick, not Nick Zebra, but Nick Ramil a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, I stepped down. It's like not a big deal. So, but I I'm a member still of Enter China. I'm still a big fan of what they do. So. Besides that, uh, Zebra is just an interesting person, and he's a he's a guy who spent a large part of his teenagehood in Japan. Um, has traveled around the world. He moved to China a while ago with the aim of going to Hong Kong, and I've spent a lot of time with him. I've slept at his place on an on occasion, crashed on his couch, <laughs> well, crashed in his, his spare bedroom. But um, yeah, I just I really like Nick Zebra. I really like him as a person. I like how he thinks about life. I like how he carries himself. And I had this realization, like I talk about InterChina all the time on the podcast. Um, I talk about the benefits that I've had from EC, but I've never actually, two things, I never really sat down and talked to anybody about what InterChina is doing right now. Like I spoke to Nick Ramil, but at that time, they were just starting the Accelerate program. And then with Zebra. I also just, as much as I'd spent time with him, like I'd never really had a deep dive conversation into his background and all that stuff. And it's one of my favorite things to do with this podcast. It was the same thing with Lorenzo, who we had a part one and part two of. Um, you know, I think part two was like two weeks ago. And Lorenzo was a good friend of mine. And uh, we're not good friend, good friend in the sense that we're, we're not close, but Lorenzo is somebody that's helped me a lot in my journey in China and I, I felt like I knew about him, but then I, when you really think about it, you're like, I actually don't know that much about this person's like history. So, um, and it's weird to kind of like sit down and be like, Hey, tell me about your history, you know, uh, especially, especially when you don't see each other so frequently. So it, it's really cool when I get to sit down with people that I admire, people that I've known for years and really just get to dig deep into who they are as an individual. So it, the podcast is really more about, who Nick Zebra is and what brought him to China and what brought him to Hong Kong eventually. So without further ado, enjoy. I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. Rico here, CEO of SourceFind Asia, host of the Made in China podcast and the host of the SourceFind Asia YouTube channel. Back with another one. Still in Hong Kong. I had a fantastic day, lots of interviews, and I saved the best for last. Nick Zebra. <laughs> I'm good, I'm good. So, as Rico just said, I'm Nick Zebra. I'm the Chief Product Officer for EC Accelerate, and uh, here to talk about some Hong Kong things and uh, Whatever. Program I'll let you lead the, the community. Yeah. So yeah, in this video, uh, Nick Zebra is going to be talking about what brought him to Hong Kong in the first place, 
and then of course the Entertainer program. I talk about it all the time, so I figured it would be good to make an actual video about my experiences and also what they're doing right now with the program. Start at the beginning, man. Like so, I mean, we talked about this yesterday. Yeah. What brought you to Hong Kong? What brought you to to Asia? You went to China first, right? Okay. So actually, when I was in high school, I got a scholarship to go to Japan. Actually, so uh, when I was like 17 years old, I was an exchange student in a local high school in Fukuoka in Kyushu in Japan. And from you know from that point on, I kind of thought that I would just continue studying Japanese and you know probably. Consider working in Japan, but you know, I, I went back and forth and did an internship later, like in Tokyo, in I think 2006. And I, I started to get curious about what else was out there, and ended up there was a program at my university, or like there was I I saw this poster for a program, and it was called Semester at Sea. So Semester at Sea basically said, okay,、uh, we have a study abroad program where you get on a ship. With like 600 other students, and you can visit. I think it was like 13 countries or something、oh, like that. That sounds so. Yeah. So, awesome. <laughs> so, we all met as a group in Ensenada, Mexico. Like started in San Diego, but took a bus down, and then started on a cruise ship kind of thing for study abroad. It's still going today, but it really it brought me to Hong Kong for the for the first time, and I had already had relatives. Living in Hong Kong, my aunt and uncle were here for a very long time,、um, and my cousin and her husband were here. So I came here for like just two days, I think, and it really just changed my perspective because it immediately it's just this、uh, cosmopolitan place, and a lot of people speak English here. And you know, if for people who've never been in Hong Kong, it's just a very、um, it's a dynamic, fast-moving place that's very, very different than the way Japan is. But it's also got a lot of、um, the same, I guess, flavor that you would have in a lot of other Asian countries, and so it's very much, you know, like I said, this cosmopolitan place that I felt like I could be myself, and you know, potentially see a longer-term future here. Yeah. Whereas Japan, I, I always felt a bit like an outsider there. So when I came to Hong Kong, it was just like, oh, it kind of clicked, and I guess the summer of 2008,、um, I asked if I could do an internship here with my. Cousin's husband, and so I was here for three months, and I still really, really liked it. So then, when I graduated from college in 2009, I, I came back. And I, I had no real plan. I just kind of came here and tried to figure it out. So, and your family has a history of living abroad and stuff. And you mentioned that your grandparents were missionaries. And- yeah, my grandparents were missionaries in China、um, in 1947, and in 1949 they were asked to leave、uh, due to certain political circumstances. But then, you know, my aunt and uncle ended up. They moved to Taiwan at some point, so they were in Taiwan a long time, and ended up staying in Hong Kong for, you know, twenty. I, I don't know, twenty 
seven years, something like that. Mm -hmm. I'd always grown up with Hong Kong on the radar. You yeah. know, my, my mom would be talking to my aunt on the phone with a calling card, like, you know, dialing up and, uh, oh, and the time difference. So like, I, 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 grew up, calling cards. <laughs> I grew up with that like from a young age. And so I think in those two days, it was September 2007. That's, it was only two days, but everything kind of shifted. Yeah. And I remember telling the person, I, I was with somebody and I was like, I'm moving, <laughs> like I'm moving back here. And I've been pretty dead set on that goal. Basically like the first time I tried, I came here with no plan um, and finally got, you know, offered a working visa and everything and the visa got rejected. <laughs> So I had to go back to the this, U.S. for This was in 2009, 2010? Yeah, that was, so yeah, that was in 2010. Yeah. But it, it wasn't my first try. It, you know, there was like all this post-financial crisis stuff happening. So it wasn't a great time for anybody applying for jobs. But, you know, I figured that at least if I was going to be applying for jobs and getting rejected, I would rather do it in Hong Kong than in the U.S. at that time. Yeah. There was like a lot of hiring freezes. But yeah, like it was a very wild time and like trying to figure out how to get rooted. And... I was in the U.S. for a year, and I realized like maybe this is the chance where I finally go to China, you know, learn sh some Chinese, and that's why I opted. A friend of mine was like, "Hey, if you come to Shenzhen, I can help get you a job." And so I was there for almost two years in Shenzhen before successfully getting a job and a working visa here. So finally did it, and have been here about six years since that time. And. How did you meet your, your wife? So yeah, she was actually um, working for a factory there. And you know, we basically just met through friend of friends while we were in Shenzhen. And so as I made the transition in Hong Kong, uh, basically every weekend, well, we would switch. So every other weekend, we would go back and forth across the border. So I was between Hong Kong and Shenzhen for like six years like we're obviously still back and forth but just not on the same time frame because we would only do on the weekend yeah what you did was you ended up leveraging being in china like being in shenzhen being able to cross over to hong kong frequently to get your job in hong kong yeah and it was cool i think um part of you know uh, i have a distinct memory of hanging out in shenzhen during the world cup 2010 and uh one of my really good friends um he kind of showed it to me for the first time like i got to stay probably a week and just, you know, watch um, the matches on TV and really understand that Shenzhen is just this up and coming city. Like, yeah. I don't think, you know, it doesn't happen very often in history where you see all these things just happening uh, year after year. So I knew that I wanted to be there to take part and see what was going on, how it was growing. And also at the same time, um, really learn Chinese because, you know, if you don't know any Chinese, even being in Hong Kong, you're just, it's just a lot less valuable because you don't understand the context of things. You don't, you know, if you don't have any knowledge of what's going on in mainland China, you know, a lot of business happening in Hong Kong has to do with China. So this was also a good opportunity to just be there, you know, and learn. And, and at the time, I definitely wasn't ready for it and it felt like a roadblock. But, you know, looking back, I, I think that it, you know, it's definitely the right thing. And, and, you know, Shenzhen is still this incredibly dynamic city that's growing. And, um, you know, so being, having experience in Hong Kong and there, like really, you know, I feel like it's, it's really valuable. Yeah, and that's a, that's a really good point that you bring up because that's also feeding into what you're doing right now with, with Enter China. Um, so when you first started working in, in Hong Kong, how did the, the work that you do in Hong Kong lead you to meet 
the guys from Brink and, and Nick Ramil? Um, okay, good question. So, I my first job was with um, a Japanese company. So it was a Japanese uh, headhunting agency, and I even got to do one of my interviews in Japanese, which was cool. Um, glad I got the job. Are you, are you still still fluent? Yeah, it depends who's asking. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, I, I think uh, getting a job as a headhunter really. Uh, you know, you learn how to do sales, you learn how to be on the phone, you know, it's, and it's Hong Kong working style. So you're just kind of on call all the time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I did that. And the more I, I learned to kind of specialize in, you know, it, you, you can't, you can't be a headhunter for everything, right? Like you can't recruit for like lawyers and banking and technology. Like you really need to specialize. And the more you understand how to specialize in an area, then kind of the better you can get at it, right? Because you know, if you're searching for software developers, then you've got to even specialize in what kind of developers and what kind of, you know, programming languages they use. The more you can really specialize, um, you know, the higher chance I think you have of success. So uh, my, my next job was actually with an Australian-based uh, headhunting company. And it was there, you know, got to work with a lot of really talented people and learn how to specialize. And so I kind of, tried to become the person who was the headhunter for startups, yeah. right? Like there wasn't really a designated startup headhunter or company that was really specializing in startups because there wasn't a, a huge funding environment for early stage ventures in Hong Kong. Um, you know, I think it's changed over the last few years, but, you know, at that time, you know, 2000, I don't know, uh, 2004, 14, 15, you know, it was just starting to get up and running. Um, and that's just because the, the startup costs in Hong Kong are so high, right? Like it's yeah, I mean, like, it's really expensive to rent an office, yeah. and you don't have a ton of graduates from, you know... Uh, so basically, like, all the tech graduates, they're forming in Shenzhen. Shenzhen has created this sort of cluster for technology. Hong Kong is still very much um, financial center. Yeah. So, you know, in the meantime, you've seen fintech, like rise and uh, a lot of people working with crypto and blockchain and um, that type of technology has really taken off in Hong Kong uh, due to you know experience in financial stuff but there was not really a startup scene as you would say and so I just kind of stuck with it and tried to meet everybody who was in anything regarding startups and you know like I, I wouldn't say it was necessarily a great strategy for making lots of money as a headhunter but what it did was it I became the person who people would introduce in order to learn more about what was going on in startups, you know? And so I made, made a ton of great friends and a lot of people who are interested in startups in Hong Kong. And I think eventually Kello was launching like their, uh, their product and they were trying to do their email campaign, right? It's really important to get emails in your funnel. And so Kello was collecting emails and I just decided I wanted to help out because I, you know, working with startups, I really wanted to be providing value to founders. And I think through, like I remember coming to the Brink office once, um, Nick and I had met before that, but I remember he asked me and he was like, why are you helping? Like, why do you want to do this? You know, and, um, and like maybe he thought there was some angle, right? But you know, it was because I truly was like, these people are trying to start a business, like they need all the help they can get. And you know, eventually 
one thing led to another, and you know, we started talking about InterChina, like community building. Um, I'd also been helping out with Product Hunt. So Product Hunt is a website. Um, it was started by you know a guy named Ryan Hoover. Um, I grew up with and in the, went to high school and even college together. So as he was starting Product Hunt, um, I just wanted to help. I did meetups and stuff here in Hong Kong. So also, I think one of the first Product Hunt meetups I did was actually with Brink because they said you can use the office for um, you know for this purpose, and that was really great. So. Through this kind of network of startup entrepreneurs, um, Nick and I got acquainted, and eventually, uh, you know, we we got Travis um, and started work. You know, trying to figure out what could be. Right. I remember you and I met like at the office. Yeah, yeah. That was probably 2017. Yeah. Yeah. It was a little while ago. So we we figured out how to kind of build something together and eventually it became what's now East Accelerate, you know, which is, it's a, it's a much more hands-on process of getting people from start to finish to launch a, a new e-commerce brand, right? Yeah, because I, I, yeah. I think a question a lot of people get, uh, ask me, because a lot of the people that watch the YouTube channel and listen to podcasts are familiar with EC, like they've been following EC for years. It's like, what is the difference between what you guys are doing now versus, you know, four years ago? You know, so could you maybe just explain? You said you kind of touched on it a little bit, but yeah. Yeah. So, um, like I said, I, I I hadn't been involved like since the very beginning, um, but in terms of the last couple of years, we've really we understand exactly the value that we know we can add to people, right? I'm sure there are people out there right now that are thinking like, you know, I really just want to have my own thing. And I've seen these cool backpacks on Indiegogo, or I've seen this watch brand launch, or you know maybe they've heard of these kind of crazy success stories about people launching a brand and you know selling it and scaling. And you know we we realized that we could actually take you know the existing blueprints that were part of InterChina from the beginning, um, you know the community aspect of people depending upon each other and, and working together. And actually turn that into a very powerful accelerator framework that would help people to launch their own brand, yeah. right? It's still a lot of hard work, right? Every founder who goes through, um, they have to dedicate the time, they have to make their goals, they actually have to do the work. But we've never had a failed crowdfunding launch up to this point. And everybody who puts the work in and just follows the process uh, has seen success. What do you think are some of the misconceptions that people have when it comes to launching their own products, like whether it's not realizing how much money it takes or not doing enough customer discovery, customer discovery, things like that. What do you, what do you find with the people that come into the program? Um, yeah, we, we get different, different types, but uh, I think some people, they think it's a lot easier than it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, because you have the idea for something, there's a, there's a lot of passing the buck, I think, when people are new to this process where they'll think like, oh, I've got this awesome idea for this Bluetooth-enabled you know, smart machine. And that's fine, but have you ever, you know, do you know how Bluetooth technology works? Like, are you an engineer? Are you the technical person behind yeah. that? You know, and, and oftentimes the answer is no for that type of person, 
right? If you're trying to do something that may be way beyond, you know, it'd be, I could have an idea for self-driving cars, right? Oh, I'd love to produce this self-driving car. I could say that, but there's a disconnect because who's going to actually be on the ground, you know, creating the thing. And so I think that um, that's why we, even in the, in the framework for choosing your product, it's like, okay, really understand how much of the value you can put into it. Because as a founder, you know, your job is to kind of put all these pieces together and, and run the show. So, you know, it's not good to put the, a core element of your product just in the hands of somebody else, assuming that they're gonna make this award-winning product. Like, if they were the ones who knew how to to market and sell that, and they also know how to make it, then what's stopping them? Yeah, what's, you know what's what I mean? the point? And I, yeah. We're seeing this a lot, right? Where suppliers are just putting their product direct on Amazon. You know what I mean? Because Amazon is very much commoditized. Yeah. There's not so much the element of branding and building your own audience. You know, Amazon is basically like, whoever can make this thing and put it on our platform and facilitate the lowest purchase price, then you know, those people can win. So you're seeing a lot of suppliers putting stuff on Amazon directly. You know, and so I think that common misconceptions is just about understanding what it takes, understanding that it's gonna be a lot of hard work and being willing to stick with it. You know, it takes, people say, how much time does it take to launch a product? Yeah. It, it's entirely dependent on how much work you actually put in, right? If you, if you do an hour of work a week, then it could take you 10 years, right? Yeah. But if you're consistently putting in the work and you know what goals you're trying to hit, which is why we broke our program down into phases, right? You can kind of take as long as you want, really, like each phase, but you've got to get signed off to move through the process. And, um, you know, that's because if we try really hard to make people stick to a deadline, um, it, it takes up a tremendous amount of our resource. If I'm calling you once a week, hey, Rico, where are you at? Are you done? And then I get back an excuse from you saying, oh, you know, um, I didn't do it because I had to walk my dog and then, you know, I had to do this other thing. It's, it, it's really hard to manage that with a small team yeah. um, because we need to focus on, you know, making sure our business is growing too, right? And it, it really has to be a give and take between founders taking initiative. We make sure that they're doing all the right work and eventually that leads to a successful launch. Yeah, I mean, you're not running the business for them. You're just giving them the framework to launch a product, but yeah. they have to do the work, right? Well, another thing that I, I say is like, you know, obviously Brink is a very different uh, accelerator type model. Um, I tell people with this framework, like, you know, it, there's an upfront fee, but it's, we're not owning any of that business, right? If you do, I mean, we've had people in the past do more than a million dollars in crowdfunding. so. We, you know, we're a fixed fee, so we just don't get any equity in those companies going forward, but at least we have a lot of goodwill. And so other founders who are, you know, trying to get experience, we've really built a cluster, you know, of, of entrepreneurs who can trade wisdom and, and, you know, speak to each other in a way that hopefully adds value, right, to the community. Are there any products or platforms you recommend people stay away from? Um, can you rephrase e that a little bit? E-commerce platforms or any specific type of products that you recommend people stay, stay away from? I mean, okay, it's a little bit, it feels a little bit general. Um, I think that a lot of people get caught up in the misconception that Amazon FBA is somehow their friend. Um, I think fulfillment 
like it's it's a very complicated answer, but basically, like Amazon is is in it to win it for themselves, right? Yeah. Nobody else really matters, and so there's been this idea that just doing an FBA business um, could be a quick ticket to riches. But in a way, like I think the way that the EC team sees it is that you know it's extremely risky, like to give Amazon all of that power. Like you don't really get access to, you know. Customers building your own audience—you really don't own. Um, you're not able to sell directly to a group of people that you spent time cultivating. You're basically just dependent on, you know, your ranking and, and showing up in the search results and being competitive on price. Yeah. So we kind of try to do the opposite of that. You know, cultivate a brand and, and so in terms of platform, I don't think that software is magical in a sense of it doesn't. We're not trying to teach people things that are not already fundamental principles of how a business should operate, right? You should still have a core product. You should still be finding the right type of people to sell to. You know, those things shouldn't change. And then, you know, managing your price, things like that. You have to get those things right, right? But in terms of platform, there, there's really no magic bullet. Yeah. And I think that that, that is also. You do, you see it, right? You'll see it in little ways. Like, I just put this thing on Kickstarter and people are supposed to give me money, you know? And they don't understand like the months and months and months of hard work that go into that, you know, period of time that could be a month, could be 10 days where you're actually having the campaign live or you're actually trying to get people to, to fund it, right? Yeah. There, there are a lot of steps involved in getting to that, so. I don't know. There's no magic bullet. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I just I was thinking about the Amazon side of things. Like, obviously, a lot of people, like including my clients, um, want to jump on Amazon. We, we get people, you know, launching their first products all the time. Um, but at the same time, from a financial standpoint, I think sometimes it, for them it makes sense to start on Amazon and then launch their own products. Yeah, I mean. When we are interviewing yeah. founders like who apply for our program, uh, we definitely look for things like previous experience. Uh, I heard a horror story the other day about how, you know, just a combination of how things can go wrong when trying to build an FBA business. Um, so, like, we do look at that in terms of previous experience. If you're if you're willing to get into the the technical parts, right? It shows initiative. You can. You can do something. You can learn new things on the fly. You can adapt. Those are all really good things. Um, but you know, there's nothing special about the platform itself. You have to really strategically understand how to build yourself into a protected space so that you can start running a scalable business. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's also uh, you're, you're scalable and defensible. It's a long-term play. Like when you're building a brand, right? Versus a lot of people with Amazon thing. It was kind of like a it was a gold rush for a bit. Yeah. yeah, and it's not—it's yeah. definitely not going to last forever. Yeah, it's I think already, any already. any kind of get rich quick kind yeah. of mindset. You usually see people, you know, it's like this kind of. You see when the dream crumbles, right? When they think, "Oh, I'm going to, you know, front load and spend all this money on something, and it's supposed to work right now." I think if anything, people should, you know, just manage your expectation. Like you can. You can do such powerful things by just doing one little thing every day for a year, right? Rather than trying to cram it all into, you know, three months where you're really fired up and then you just lose all your momentum. You know, I, I think it's it's good to to try and uh, 
position yourself for the long haul. You know, like it, it makes a huge difference. From a uh, just a more practical standpoint, do you recommend your the people that go through the program? Do you recommend them coming to China for an extended period of time, or is that not necessary? I mean. Not really. I, I think things have dramatically changed, right? From when when you guys were doing Canton Fair stuff. Like I know you made a ton of contacts and relationships of people that were like, okay, wow, like I'm in China. It's this big fair. You know, everyone, different suppliers, and and there's there's definitely something to be said about it. But I don't think anyone needs to come to China, especially now, right? Things are shifting in the supply chain.、Um, I think you know, obviously. It's good to find a good partner. Like you know, we recommend talking to you, and I'm sure you've got a huge network of contacts like that can figure out how to get the thing people are trying to get done. Yeah,、right? full full disclosure. Like I'm I'm part of the program. Like there's a sourcing section. I think it's an additional sort of like bonus content type thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah so just just so people know. No, and 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 it's good because ultimately we have to rely on a network of people we trust. You know, and I think that. In China, you know, it takes time to build trust with everybody, right? That's a it's a huge part of just being here, and so, you know, th- there are lots of ways to source a product, right? And you can you can do it in China is not the only country that can produce things, but it has a really really big supply chain, and a very competent one too. That's good. Yeah, no, I think I, I agree. If you can get good strategic partners, I think. If you're trying to save money, sometimes it makes sense. Like if you don't want to have to work with a consultant or something like that, coming to China for an extended period definitely cuts down on some things.、Um, so a good example is like Maurice is going through the program right now, and like having him come to the factory to sign off on like samples and things like that cuts a week and a half of feedback because we're, we're sh- either we with other clients we'd have to ship the samples to them in the states or Europe or whatever. And then you know they would go through it, send us the feedback, and then we pass it on to the factory. Whereas if you know we tell Maurice like, hey,、uh, sample's ready in a couple days, he flies in, we go to the factory, at the factory together, real time feedback, factory implements changes, sometimes even within that day. So that's one one major benefit I would say. I would say though, at the risk of you know, that's it's a very different study because. He had done such a good job in getting, you know, building a funnel, doing customer discovery work, really guaranteeing and understanding who he's selling to for the long term. Yeah. Right. And it's not until he actually, you know, he had a successful crowdfunding campaign. Has been very diligent about every step of the process, and this is just one more way to, you know, kind of.、Um, Make sure that everything gets done quickly and that he can sign off on it. Because when people are asking about coming to China, it's usually when they are, you know, they they learn about. Know, you have people talking about drop shipping or certain things, and they just want like a quick and easy product that they、yeah. think it's going to be like, oh, I'm just going to find this, I'm going to pick this, and I'm going to start selling, and I'm going to make a lot of money.、Um, so people who have never been to China, no previous experience, no real reason why they need to come, I think. I don't want to encourage people to just say, "Oh, I'm going to get on a plane to China to figure out how to get rich selling some product." But in the case of Maurice, where he really went through a diligent process and is now, you know, just signing off on things that need to get done, it's just very—it's a very different mindset. You know, there there are reasons that you should come, 
but I would say most cases you don't need to go. Okay. Um, obviously, we have some time constraints, so I don't want to. There's, there's more questions that I have, but um, what? Uh, how do? How does one join the program? Say so wants to join the program. I mean, by far the most effective way is to go to www.enterchina.co and sign up for the email course. Right. Learn, read the emails, go through the case study, get to know us. Um, and you know, and and eventually um, there will be a prompt to get on the you know the you can sign up for the application for EC Accelerate, right? Sign up with your name, give some detailed info, and then uh, someone will reach out if they you know they'll read the application and and then try to schedule a call. So you know, it's it's very important that whoever's applying for the program understands us and what we offer and what we do. Uh, and then we evaluate accordingly to make sure that they're the right fit for the program. Where do you see where do you see the the program going? I guess in the next. Uh, I usually ask three to five years, but we could go with like one to three years. I mean, um, I, I think that we're getting a lot more uh, really talented uh, technical freelancers. Like I, I see, I see a more streamlined way. Uh, you know, people, you know, when they're signing on, they're where do I get a landing page done? Or how do I get a 3D rendering or a CAD file? You know, stuff that takes very, a lot of specialty, right? I could imagine that uh, there will be more freelancers involved uh, throughout the process so people have options. You know what I mean? Uh, for example, like if you're trying to make something, you've probably experienced this, where you're trying to make clothing or cloth or something, it can be easier to, to render a bag than it is to do like a garment. You know what I mean? And so um, we need different people with different specialties to be able to do that so it can still be an effective, um, you know, that people can still go through the program effectively. What do you think is the smallest thing you guys have done with the program that's brought the largest results? Say it again, the what? Smallest thing you guys have done with the program that's brought the largest results. Oh, you mean like 80-20? 80-20, You think about it. Um, I think just just uh, having a way to manage the process. Like I've talked to you endlessly about how Airtable works, but using Airtable is basically like combination of a cloud spreadsheet that actually operates as a database, and so that's allowed us to keep really neat and tidy records. I know that when we switched over, um, you know, from sort of the old program to the way we operate now. Um, the records, you know, as things tend to do, right? They can get really messy, but this has allowed us to be really organized and efficient to understand exactly where people are um, at any point during the program, which allows us to give them the flexibility to do their work. So, you know, it, it's it's the organization I think has, has been really important, but then also um, just the way we operate in terms of uh, our sales. You know, we've just got a very efficient process of getting people in, and evaluating them and, and making sure they're right fit for the program. And what three books, uh, podcasts, or say blogs would you rec recommend people listen or read? So I actually like uh, my favorite podcast is, is Radio Lab, and they just do a really good job telling stories. I like there's one about architecture called Ninety Nine Percent Invisible. Um, and then in, it's, it's Roman Mars, I think, is the host. It's the same, same WNYC uh, I think, or uh, I, I don't. I don't think they're the same. I think they 
might be affiliated, but one is based in the Bay Area, like out of Oakland. Um, the other one's in New York. And then um, I listen to Joe Rogan podcasts a lot more now. I don't know, some of the conversations are really interesting to me, but, um, and then in terms of book, I've actually been rereading the four-hour work week and, and kind of just reflecting on how powerful, you know, it, I like Tim Ferriss. Yeah. And I think a lot of people who are doing this kind of stuff uh, well, obviously, like if you were to like, I've asked this question <laughs> to so many people, and like that's nine times out of ten, that is one of the answers is the four-hour work week. Like, it's crazy the amount of people, the amount of overlap there is with that book. Okay, I do have another one, too, just so completely different than the Tim Ferriss one. If you're interested in like uh, learning about what it might be like inside North Korea, there's a book called Nothing to Envy by Barbara Demick. She used to be the uh, the bureau chief, I think, of the LA Times in Beijing. And she wrote this just phenomenal book about North Korea. Um, and so, yeah, that's a very, very different type of read. <laughs> but, you know, obviously, I live in Asia, so it's, I'm very curious about stuff like that, you know. Um, and, and obviously, geopolitics, there are a lot, there's a lot going on at any given time. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome, man. Man, so thanks for, uh, thanks for being on the show. If people want to reach out to you, where can they find you? So I guess you could just send me um, an email uh, directly. My email is nick, N-I-C-K, dot zeber, Z-I-E-B-E-R, at enterchina.co. And we'll link it up in, uh, in the show notes as well. If you want to reach out to us, that's podcast at sourcefinasia.com. If you want to check out the show notes at sourcefinasia.com slash made in China. Of course, if you're watching this on YouTube, the links will be in the description below and I will see you guys next week don't forget to like comment share subscribe subscribe subscribe